Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the Near and Queer to My Heart podcast. I'm your host, Amanda G., Always happy to be here. Always happy when I have a new episode for you. I wish I could just, my dream is to just drive around the country. No, no, no. Fly. I should aim higher than just driving. Fly around the world and just interview queer performers and just do this podcast. I love it. I love getting to know people. If this is your first time listening, every episode we interview a different queer performer. We learn about their life. We learn about why they do what they do, how they got into it, who they are as a person. And it's amazing and awesome. And I'm always so honored every single time I'm doing an interview. Before we get to this episode's guests, I do have to do the business thing because I'm trying to be better. Part of my New Year's resolutions, work smarter, not harder. So hey, I'll let you all know where you can find me. I will be recording a half-hour comedy special at the House of Blues in New Orleans on Decatur Street, March 27th, 7 p.m., totally free. For those who I haven't told you this a million times, March 27th is the anniversary of Mariah Carey's birthday, and that is no coincidence. This is how it was planned. This is how it was destined to be. So come check that out, House of Blues, March 27th, 7 p.m., totally free. We have some great performers. We have Camille Roan hosting the show. She's been on the podcast. Alita Glass will be opening. She's been on the podcast. And Mallory Head, she'll also, you know, be at that show. So come check that out. March 28th, the very next night, we will be kicking off. We will be helping to kick off. I'm not going to take all the credit there. We'll be helping to kick off the Saints and Sinners Literary Festival. I'll be telling a story on March 28th at the Ace Hotel, uh, where there's a bunch of storytellers. There's some amazing poets. Um, it's going to be a really cool night. So come check that out. Ace Hotel, March 28th. And it's, uh, I believe, doors at 7. You can find the information on Facebook. We'll post it for you. And then, uh, as we've mentioned before, we're going to be at Clexicon in Las Vegas, April 11th to 15th. So come by, say hi. We'll have some swag for you. Yeah. So this episode, we bring to you Mrs. Deacon Dorothy Brown. Now, I met her when she was doing the New Orleans Drag Workshop, and just to see her in her different performances, she's done Queer Mountain now, um, the storytelling show, I've seen her do drag. She's now hosting and producing her own show, The Mrs. Deacon's Throwdown, which I'm really excited for. The first one's actually tonight, so I'll report back to you uh, when I talk to y'all again. But Mrs. Deacon Dorothy Brown, she does so many amazing things. Her real-life job is, she has her dream job. Like, how cool is that? Her dream job by day, and when she leaves that, she goes and performs. And that's her dream shit at night. Like, that's that's amazing. And she was so open and funny and just an all-around pleasure to talk to. And I can't wait for y'all to hear this. So let's get to Mrs. Deacon Dorothy Brown. How you doing today? I'm doing all right. We just got done doing the 5 o'clock. So you're, like, on the news, on the news. On like, the I news turned my TV news. on, and I'm like, I know that, dude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so um, I produced the 10 o'clock as well. 
And so now we're just in between. And actually, you came during a uh, kind of a busier day because we had a basketball game that was right before us. Oh. So it cut into our newscast. So, so I was, to, like, I had to, up. well, I had to speed it up, and I had to cut certain things out from the desk. Last week we had the same problem, and I was just throwing sparks the whole way because I floated wrong things and everything else. So <laughs> how do you decide? Like, so you're like, okay, well, there was three murders. And yeah. then this Girl Scout troop did something really nice for an old person. My thing is, is that um, you do local first, and then you go statewide and then national. But let, let's say that, you know, something big nationally happens. Of course, that would lead the newscast. Like if the president did something or, you know, something comes out of Washington or something like that. But most of the time, it's local first. And yeah, we do have to cover the murders and everything else that come along with it. it I like my job a lot. It's so much fun. How did you get, like, how do you get this job? I feel like that's one of the jobs when you're a kid and they say, what do you want to be when you grow up? And people point to the, I want to be that person on TV and you're doing it. Like, well, you know, I, I grew up here. I grew up in Belchase and I... If you want to explain like where Belchase is in relation to, you know... Like the actual city? Yeah. Uh, okay, well, we, uh, does West Bank, <laughs> does that count for somebody? So, yeah, I guess so. There's a the Crescent City Bridge, okay, um, yeah. which uh, if you cross the bridge, you're still in the greater New Orleans area. Um, but that's what we would call the West Bank, even though technically... Technically, because the Mississippi kind of curves, it's not always actually kind of depends on where you're at in the city. (laughs) (laughs) But that's New Orleans. Yeah, so I'm from the, you know, if you're looking at a map of Louisiana and it's the part that sticks out into the uh, Gulf of Mexico, that's the parish that I, or county, I'll put that in quotation marks, parish that I grew up in was Plaquemines Parish. And then at the very top of it, kind of where New Orleans meets is where Belchase is. So you grew up there? I did. I grew up there. And for the people that are from New Orleans, we'll know who Angela Hill is. And so that's who I wanted to be when I that's grew up. That's the old news lady. Yeah. That's that the, when, I, when I first came here, I made fun of her. I got in a lot. I was at a bar and she was on TV. Uh-huh. And I was like, why do they let this old lady be on TV for? <laughs> and everyone at the bar like wanted me kicked out. Because they're like, she has been a staple of news since before I was born. And she will be there forever. Yeah. And like, I remember like growing up watching Angela Hill and like, she had such a powerful voice and such a presence. And I was like, yes, that's who I want to be when I grow up. I want to be just like her and just wish everybody a good night at the end of the day. So that's what I did. And I knew from like, you know, whenever you did career day, I mean, it got kind of boring whenever you showed up every year. As the news anchor. <laughs> was that like also your Halloween costume? Yeah, <laughs> like the roving reporter. I remember playing cops and robbers and I would be like the news van that would follow everybody. <laughs> That's how weird I was. <laughs> I love that. Um, but yeah, we uh, went to college and I had a great, you know, advisors and professors and everybody else that um, helped me get along, you know, go along the way. And I've traveled to different places and my first job was in Abilene, Texas. I was a anchor out there for a little bit for about two years and then my I wanted to come back to Louisiana I wanted to come back to New Orleans so I got a job as a morning reporter in Shreveport uh, I know those the alarm clock would ring <laughs> at 2 30 in the morning what was your t- like you were on 5 a.m for like- I would be on um from 5 a.m to 7 and then we had the the CBS's morning cut-ins so like if there was something big happening up there we would you know I would do the cut-ins and then we had a 9 a.m. newscast and then a noon newscast so it was like by the time I got to noon I was dead and I you could see how tired I was on my face but yeah and then I took a producing job down here my family needed a little help and I came down here and took a producing job so and I just got back on the air I don't know if my new position starts tomorrow or what but uh, I got promoted to reporter and anchor 
News with a twist, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's news a, with a news with a twist is really cool. Kind of, I don't know if it's just a New Orleans thing, but it's kind of like they report on like local shit, but it's not necessarily news. They're just like, hey, these people are doing a thing. Let's have them talk about it, or let's make a cocktail yeah. together. There's a bar on set. Um, I did it once for my sketch group a couple of years back, and I was like, it didn't feel like an interview. It just felt like we hung out for five minutes, and they were like, thank you for your time. Yeah, it, it is. It's like, you know, we, we try to find the weird things that are going on. You know, if, if you're covering a, a Saints game, you don't want to, like, go and interview the players. We want to go and find, like, you know, the guy who washes the towels for the players and interview him. We want to find, like, the twisted part of each story, and that's what we kind of focus in on. You make it sound so easy. You're just like, well, I just wanted to be a reporter my whole life. And then I decided to do it. And then I did it in Texas. And then I wanted to come back to Louisiana. So I just did it. I mean, that I've it's, always... There's got to be more to that. <laughs> well, you know, my parents have always said that they were like, God, you are just so exhausting. Because it's like, I just, when I see something that I want, I go for it. And I really don't stop until I get it. That's awesome. So, congratulations. Thank you. So how'd you end up in Texas? I wound up in Texas. So after Katrina, we, um, my family owns a bunch of ranches out in Texas, uh, West Texas. So we were only about 45 minutes away from the New Mexico border, like John Wayne country. What so, kind of ranches? Like? like they were cattle ranches. And then my uncle also had a uh, wrecker business. So since, you know, the interstate cuts right through I-10, you know, the truck wrecks and all that, we, he'd have to go and clean up the interstate and get the trucks off the highway and all that. Oh, so. It was just people tired of driving through Texas. They're <laughs> right? like, fuck it. I, you know, like 14 hours to get through Texas? I have never done the drive. I've heard people talk about it and nobody has, nobody, even people that love road trips, even people that are like RV people for life, like you just get Texas over with and it takes forever. It takes all day, like all day. It's, it's ridiculous how long for me to drive out to my parents' house. I think it's about 16 hours. Oh shit. Right. What do you do on road trips? Are you a music I, just, I listen to a lot of music. I have um, podcasts that I listen to. A lot of uh, CNN radio. I love the news, so I listen to that. I know that's boring. Um, but no, it's a lot of... Well, I, I, I love my country dream. music. Yeah, I love my country music, so I play a lot of that. Ah, yes. I do love my country music. I um, No, I, I love that you're just like... I'm a news guy. Like, probably in your sleep, instead of listening to meditations, you're just listening to news so that you have the 24-hour news cycle so you're yeah. not behind on anything. No, and I remember, you know, in Shreveport, I uh, I had a TV in my kitchen and I had a TV in my bedroom and it, like they were all kind of, uh, like I had this one long hallway to where it would all be connected and ABC has this show, it's like for the, uh, what is it when you can't sleep? Narcolip Insomniac? Insomniac. Okay. I don't know what I was going for. I was going to say Narcolepsy when you have like, oh, necrophilia is a whole other thing. I was like, I don't think that's right. <laughs> I thought you were going to say narcoleptic and no. I was like, no, they have no problem sleeping. They, just, they actually cannot control. You can't wake them up. No, I'm the opposite. Um, and anyway, but they had the uh, the show that, that would be on for the people that can't sleep and that's what I would wake up to every morning. And so I'd catch up on the news and then go into work. It's ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So how old were you for Katrina? This is 2005. That was 2005. I was 14. Okay. So you're 14. Your family, you totally relocate to Texas or is it temporary? Like what's... Well, we didn't know. So it happened during Labor Day weekend. And we, during Southern Decadence weekend. Southern is, Decadence. The gays did it. We did the it. The gays did it. That's what happened. You know, <laughs> God was like, that's enough. Yeah. <laughs> too many of us. It was just too like many. one too many that year showed up and God was like, like shut like, it down. Just throw, throw away the whole city. So we actually, my parents 
protected my brother and I from a lot of what was actually happening. So they really didn't let us know, you know, what all was really going on. They really shielded us a lot from a lot. And I really thank them for that. But we moved out to Texas. Well, actually, it was Labor Day weekend. And every year during Labor Day, we would actually go out to the um, ranches to go dove hunting. And that was a whole weekend that dove we spent. Hunting? Yeah, Y'all dove hunting. killed them? We are a family of hunters, yes. Okay. <laughs> we, we got guns in the house. <laughs> but yeah, we um, go dove hunting out at the ranch. I just and... never heard of dove hunting. I'm, I'm from the suburbs of Los Angeles, so we oh. didn't do any hunting. So whenever someone has a specific type of hunting or the fact that there's hunting licenses, or mm-hmm. like, I have no idea about any of that. It's just all well, we did, very new uh, to me. We did doves. We did... But the quail, we did quail. What other things did we hunt out there? I don't know. I could never shoot any of it. I mean, I would shoot rocks and stuff, and I would, like, learn how to shoot the gun. But I really, I could never pull the trigger on an animal for some reason. Like, I wasn't built for ranch life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so when we moved out there, you know, our stay got extended. And I think it was day three of what was going on um, is when my dad turned to me. He's like, well, we've enrolled you in school. And we went from a class of, you know, a thousand to six 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 i was one of the six and your brother was one of the six one of, well he was in another he okay. was four years younger than i was i, I see so each grade had six i don't know how many he had. <laughs> i think some had 12 some had you know 15 but i think like the biggest class maybe was 15 18 oh, like wow. we didn't have a big school at all it was 180 k through 12 uh, I grew I grew up in a place where they were like it should be maxed out at thirty, but we have too many people, so right. we we have enough desks to just fit more people. In. So your one classroom <laughs> would have like been the whole high school. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> pretty much. And part of the middle school. So you're fourteen year old freshman. Yeah, I was a freshman. High school. In high school. Oh man, that's a tough year. Yeah. Anyway. And I grew up there. And you're the new kid, and I'm assuming the other kids in your grade were all. Probably from there and knew each yeah, other. Yeah. So you're the new... I'm the new weirdo. From I, New Orleans, from Louisiana. From, yeah. So not only am I from this weird city, but then I act different and I'm, you know, I was still in the closet at that point. I guess at freshman, when you're 14, you really don't know. Well, I guess some people knew. So but you, I was, you knew, but you were... Well, I didn't, I didn't think I knew. Okay. I think it took... For me, coming out of the closet, it was more like me having to just be okay with it myself rather than other people being accepting. Because it seems like everybody was open arms, they ready to take me in. It just seemed like I had to say it myself, like, I am gay. And then once I admitted it to myself, then it was fine. Yeah, it took me a really long time to, even at first when I came out, I still wouldn't say the words. Like, it still took so long for me to do that. And that's what it really was. It was that first step of being like, I know, but I'm not going to think about it was my big thing. And then I was like, yeah, but no, it's still there. It's still there. But when you're a kid and you're going through all the hormonal shit, like, you don't know what's going on. And it didn't help either that I was on, I don't know if you know this um, medicine called Accutane. Oh, so, uh, yeah, I was that on that. Shit. My brother went in the hospital. He got pancreatitis from that. Yeah. He ended up in the fucking hospital from that it's shit. It's rough. I didn't do it because I thought about it. We had really shitty skin in my family. <laughs> but Accutane just seemed a little too scary. And that, yeah, because that shit, they, like if you're a woman, they made you sign something that if you got pregnant, you had to have an abortion. Yeah, like and they gave you Like no pamphlets. questions. Yeah, and I was like, you know, you're like four, 14, 15. Yeah. And I was like, uh, I'm going to take my chances. Well, see, my thing, my family, again, my family doesn't do anything half ass so whenever Accutane is the 150 percent my mom was just we were in the doctor's office and my mom was like um so what's just what's the end result here what can we just what's the most extreme thing that we can do and let's just do that 
and like let's skip all the BS. Because you're supposed to first you try like the retin A. I did the retin A. Mm-hmm. I did all the different like the those creams. types of things. Yeah, I used to get the facials where they would like basically pull your mm-hmm. blackheads out very painfully. That you do that first, and then if that's not successful, there was some pill I took. I forgot what it was called. It was like this huge pill, and it tasted like garbage. But it was like you took it twice a day, and you hoped you know your skin would clear up. But all of them too, they first made your skin worse before they make them better. Mm-hmm. And when you're a kid, when you're that young. I was almost like, I'd rather it just be like mediocre the whole time versus really bad and then all of a sudden good. Yeah. Well, you know, that was our thing is that I just finally did it and I had to go through Accutane twice. I had to do two rounds of oh, it. Shit. So I had to do a round in college as well. And you know, what was so funny is that whenever, because we had mock newscasts and everything, my skin and my, around my lips were so sensitive. When those lights would come on, the newscast lights, my lips would start bleeding while I was on the air. Holy shit. Yeah. That was, that was cute. Yeah, it's a good look. It's a great look. <laughs> Halloween's like the only day that it's like, this is the one day that this, this can happen. Exactly. And everyone's like, yeah, it's part of the broadcast. And I feel like even now, like I still have, like I know when the weather changes, my nose gets dried out. I have to have lotion around me just because of that stuff. I was scared too because I don't think, I feel like they hadn't tested it enough at that point. <laughs> like, How many rats had to take this before you decided to give it to me? Yeah, I feel like Big Pharma just had enough money to pay to push it through. And yeah. then all the dermatologists were pushing it on the, these poor kids. And a lot of us were so vulnerable. Like, just, just do it, you yeah. know? Just get it over with. But it worked. I mean, I have beautiful you skin. You have beautiful skin. Your lips don't bleed anymore. No, no, no. <laughs> Oh, man. But yeah, so you're 14, you're on the Accutane. So it's like, are you at the point where it's like really fucking bad and your skin's dry? Yeah, it's. I mean, it's just, it's very rough. My, my, I would just remember everything just being so dry. But And then, you know, you put that in the desert of Texas. You know, you put the two things together, of course. I was just, I looked like Spongebob out of water. <laughs> <laughs> how did the kids, like, how did everybody else receive you and your brother? They... Being new kids in a small town is hard. Well, and, and especially a small, small, small town. Like, the whole town was 391 people. And so... It was, they took a little, and I, and I also know that I have a personality that it takes a couple minutes to warm up to as well. So couple that with, you know. I don't know, think that's true. You're well, very thank friendly. you. <laughs> You're very it's sweet. It's all facade. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I, uh, I became class president of R6. <laughs> <laughs> and then I joined the one-act play. I did basketball. I did a couple races in track. I wasn't very good at running. I did it all. I did How'd you the. You all have a team. You're like everyone. Basketball's everybody. got. You got five people. Yeah. On a court, you, you need six. You need, <laughs> I think it was six people on the court, and then get at least one person on the bench. So all of us play it all yeah. the time, and it was literally like I remember. I would get so tired of running back and forth on the on the basketball court that I would just stay on the other side and wait for them to run back. Like, I, I'm six foot tall, and I can't run my gangly ass all the way over there. I'm just gonna I'll wait just over wait. here. <laughs> And they came really back. good at defense. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. But no, I did everything. I did the um, the FFA, Future Farmers of America. Okay, we had 4-H. Okay, I so I think up. that's about... I think they had 4-H, too, oh, from what I can remember. organizations. I know. I had a pig and a goat. And you raised them or breed like... Well, they were supposed to. So we raised them, and then we showed them, and then they would buy them, and I... Don't know if they took them to slaughter. I would oh, assume that they like, took them to slaughter. Did you read Charlotte's Web? Did they not let? Is this like a banned book in well, your like, town? You know what was so bad was that I realized what was happening to my goat, Fred. I named my goat Fred. And after Fred Savage. After, I don't know why I named the goat Fred. <laughs> <laughs> but I, then I realized what was going to happen to Fred. And so in the middle of the night, I took my the pickup truck, our family pickup truck, and I went down to the pin. I broke Fred out and I drove him to the family ranch and like let him go. Oh shit! So I didn't. He didn't have to go to slaughter. 
that seems traumatizing for kids. So like they have you basically have a bond with this animal that yeah. you're taking care of. Mm-hmm. Like when I was in school, I got like an egg that I had to take care of like my child. Like they gave you an animal right. and then somebody took it away, murdered it, and then <laughs> ate it. Right. I and think... that was just something you were supposed to be like, oh, I'll just get a, right, we'll just get a, new, a new egg. But I think I think that's just how I hate to say it. I think this is just how some people are built for that life. And you, and I mean, it's necessary, you know, to get the meat and everything. And I'm just not built that way to, to handle. I got attached to my animals and I couldn't do it. I mean, the pig, yeah, I sent him off to slaughter. That was why I was like, God, get away from me. <laughs> <laughs> but the goat, I couldn't do it. But still, that's hard for a kid. Like I, you know, to process death at all. Yeah. And then to like make you do that or yeah. praise you for for that like you get praise oh look at how great this animal is look yeah. how fat you got this pig so that we could eat it yeah and not fat in a bat just that's what you're supposed to do right yeah i like, think you're supposed to because it can't be too much i'm trying to remember this is like 12 <laughs> years ago now you could i think it had to be a certain you couldn't have it too fat but you couldn't have it too muscly it had to be like this perfect in between type thing that they you had to do with it in order to get the most money for it but i don't think my pig actually went to slaughter i think a breeder came and and took it to where it was gonna like live on a actual farm and not in a cage and yeah. he kind of put it out there for me because I was again I didn't like the pig but I didn't want the pig to go to why didn't you like the pig because it was gross and it was I mean I know yeah, they like bathe cool. in mud and they bathe in mud and I'm just not a farmer I yeah. just did not know what I was doing with a pig and like <laughs> I didn't exercise it or anything I didn't like it and I don't know why my parents decided that, that was a good idea for me to have a pig and go to 4-H or uh, FFA but they did. And I feel like your pig won the lottery there going to a it did. nice, it really, cushy place not being in a cage. No, and... it did. I think that pig had a great life. Good. At least that's what that <laughs> farmer told me. Yeah. <laughs> At least, you know, all the parents that tell their kids that their kitten went off to the farm. Exactly. I There was a dog. I that... want to check in on this pig yeah. situation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have, I have the same problem with the... Um, my parents told me a long time ago that we had a dog that ran away. I'm like, did it run away? <laughs> or did you, like, go give it away? Yeah. <laughs> did you just let it out? <laughs> yeah, did you just let it out? Because I feel like you just let the dog out. You just let Fred out. and I did. I just went and I let Fred out at, at the ranch. He lived a long time. So he had a really good life. He was out on this big open. We had, uh, I think it was a 50-acre ranch. Oh, shit. A 50-square-miles uh, ranch. And so he got to roam. And my aunt that was out there, this is all extended family, they uh, had him out there. And she went and took care of him. The goats were her babies. And the, the cows that were out there, like, she had her own little section with all of her pets and now people are doing yoga with goats right so it means you could go out there and uh, sit on this ranch and be with the goats and the cows and everything else did you ever tell anybody like would you have gotten in trouble for breaking this goat out i don't think i would have gotten in trouble because because i feel like i would have just uh, it's my damn goat (laughs) i don't want the goat to go to slaughter the goat's not going to go to slaughter and that's just how it's going to be yeah and that's just how i've kind of Said that I when like I said when I said I'm gonna do something the goat's not going to slaughter the goat's not going to slaughter yeah you got in that pickup I got in that pickup I put that goat in the back of it and evacuated it to the ranch <laughs> well good for Fred good for Fred Fred did he lived a really a really good life so um, how long did you stay in Texas did you do high school there I did I finished out high school there and okay and um, I had the my mom gave me the choice of coming back to New Orleans if I wanted to go to LSU or like go to college in Louisiana. Um, and so I called a few friends that were, um, in Bell Chase, you know, I think it was maybe a year after the storm and I, you know, talked to them and they were like, it's not good. 
you know, because they were still, there weren't enough books to go around to the kids. They were still teaching them out of trailers. You know, it took forever to get the city kind of back up on its feet. And I was way more involved in Texas, you know, with the sports and the, and everything else. So I made the chance, the choice um, to stay out there. And my brother wanted to stay as well. So I went to college um, in Lubbock, Texas, or it was a town called Leveland, which is just outside of Lubbock. And then I finished out university in Amarillo. And then my first job was Abilene. So you're in this small town. Was it religious there? I, you know, I don't think it was. I know I grew up Catholic. I'm still Catholic, but we didn't go to the Catholic church. We went to the non-denominational church. I know that a lot of people have different um, experiences with their religious uh, folks, but I don't, I never ha- had that problem. Okay. I really consider myself fortunate that I did not have to run into those types of people. I know that they exist, and I know that they exist out there, but I, for some reason, I never ran into them. No, that's great. I think in my head, I have this stereotype of like small Texas town yeah. has one to two churches, and they're a huge part of not just the religious aspects, but yeah. the cultural aspects. Yes. Like that's Sunday, you go to church in the morning, and then everyone does like a big you know, church lunch and mm-hmm. then, you know, whatever you do, the dance is there and you have the, like, I, th- I feel like in a lot of small towns, it is a huge part of that. And I think in my mind, and it's probably not correct, <laughs> I should do some research, but like that, that's how uh, a lot of small towns operate. Yeah, no. And, and, but religion just wasn't that big of a part of it. It was more about football. Football is where it was at. Well, football is religion. There, this is another. That, st- I was like, this is another stereotype in my head. Is like, you know, I saw Friday Night Lights and that, all these movies where it's just like football is religion. Yeah, football was religion. It rains out there, and um, football was life. And yeah, I mean, we went to church. We had a we had a really good, open minded pastor that we um, went out and, and stayed at that non denominational church for a while, and then. Um, my parents are still a part, uh, members of that church. I think it was Methodist. I don't remember, but it said the United Methodist. Whatever. It was. A, it was. A, it was a really pretty church too. It was a hundred years old. It had big stained glass windows. This tiny, tiny town. And um, but yeah, we went to we went to church quite a bit. And they ne- never did I hear you're gonna go to hell. Okay, so it wasn't like fire and brimstone. No, kinda. it was never fire and brimstone. It was, it, was, it was much more like love and acceptance and, you know, love your neighbor, treat others how you want to be treated. I do remember him saying that, you know, treat others as you want to be treated. And that's a rule that I go by. That's a good one. Yeah. I mean, I've said this before on the podcast, but I don't agree with most organized religion, but I do agree with the tenets that you get out of it. Like, yeah. don't fucking murder people. Like, treat people how you want to be treated. Like, these are things yeah. that just the be church decent. can, you know, make you, you know, through sermons and mm-hmm. through just even community, make you see the humanity. Yeah. I, you know, I think that the problem is, is that I think most people are good people. I think that most religious people are good people. However... There's always that small minority in any group, any group, and they are always the loudest and they are always the ones that get the attention because they are so loud and they make everybody else look terrible. And it doesn't matter if you're looking at politics, if you're looking at religious people, you know, kind of, there's always a bad, bad apples can ruin the whole bunch. Yeah, absolutely. Because when I think of religion, the first thing I think of is I think it, and it's one of these mega church guys. I want to say it was Joel Osteen. Mm-hmm. He had a boat. 
yeah. that he wouldn't let people who needed to evacuate right. use. And it's like, he had a boat, he has a private jet, and he was just like, no, it's for the church members only. And we're like, well, probably some of these folks will be your church members if you, if you let them in. Let, you know, if you pick them up in a boat so that they weren't stuck wherever they were stuck. And that's what I think of right away, and that's very negative, and I shouldn't think that way. <laughs> but I do think, you know, some people see uh, the church, anything, they see politics yeah. uh, as a chance as a pa- for a power grab versus a mm-hmm. chance to actually help. be closer to God and to the, your fellow humanity exactly. and humans and help people. Right. And I think that's kind of why I sometimes, I want, like, through my character that I, you know, on stage, that is kind of, I want to bring, even though everybody knows that one lady, (laughs) it doesn't matter where you are, I want to bring the positive aspects of where I grew up at. Because everybody has these negative tendencies, you know, when they think of religion or they think of, you know, white lady that wants to speak to the manager, and so I just, you know, try to be, <laughs> yeah. you know, I, I want to be the, the, the positive part of that to where, you know, if you see that person and maybe you won't be like, God, already, <laughs> I know you're terrible, you know? Yeah. Maria Bamford, this comedian has this great joke. She does this like rich white lady voice mm-hmm. and she's just like, it is 8 PM on a Friday. Yes. Of course I have time to wait for your manager. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> it's just like, yeah, that's a, but let's, let's talk about your, your, I guess you, drag character is that yeah. so you do drag i do um you've also you've done our queer mountain storytelling show I did. Uh, which you did in drag i did um which was fantastic and i do want to talk about you know some of the things that were in your story because sure. you told a very uh personal story about struggles with alcoholism yes um we're gonna put a pin in that for now because okay. um i do want to talk about what so you took the drag workshop the new orleans drag workshop i did and i want to talk about why you chose to do that and how that experience was for you like like what made you think about signing up, actually sign up, and then go through with this class and create this persona? Well, sorry, that's a lot of questions. No, no, no. I, 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 I'm a big <laughs> multi-partner because I'm like I have all these thoughts. I won't remember them. So good luck. <laughs> and I will try to follow your roadmap <laughs> that you gave me. Okay, so I dabbled in drag when I was a reporter in Shreveport. My boyfriend at the time, we were at a bar and we were watching a show, and I was like, I bet I could do that. That looks like fun. I bet I can do that. And he urged me. He's like, well, maybe you should. And so my birthday came along and I decided that I was going to put a drag show on for my birthday. And I was going to be the headliner. And so I rented a room upstairs at this bar in Shreveport. And the queen came over to the house, Maddie Barrio, and, and did me up. And we did a show. And I had a Reba number in there. I didn't have any costume changes or pads or anything else. And she did my face up. And um, it was a very rough queen (laughs) but I did it I did it the next year too and then I was um, cut you know move forward to here fast forward to here I was dating somebody and he wasn't too keen on that and I'm not someone that usually you know gets told no yeah, you've been very clear. You have a goal. There is nothing between point A and your goal, and B, your goal. Like, that right. is just where you're going. But I really, really like the guy. And so I was like, I, all right, if you want this to not, if you don't want me to do this, then, yeah, no, I can, this well, can be a compromise. What was his issue? I don't know. I, he just did not want me to do it. I don't know if he was thinking it was too femme. If it was too flamboyant, I don't know. If I that's a side of you you want to express, your yeah. partner should be like, hey, I know. I thought, you know, I, I would date a fellow artist in a heartbeat. You know, it's not really about the art that they're putting out, it's more about the person and how they can express themselves through that. So I, you know, sat on it for a couple of months and lo and behold, I broke up with him. And I think it was the next week 
not joking, or maybe the week after, I don't know, that I walked out into the front yard uh, one morning, it was like Saturday morning, and I picked up the paper, and in the paper was Vincentos and the workshop, and the, and the thing, in oh. the, the newspaper, and I thought, well, hell, this is uh, <laughs> I'm just going to do this, and so I, you know, sat down at the computer with the newspaper at, at the dining room table, and I sent out an email to, to Vince, and he was like, love it. And I like explained the character. I told him, I'm like, I'm not going to do sexy. I'm not going to wear a bodysuit. I'm not going to do this, that, and the other. But if you want a girl that can rock a pantsuit <laughs> and a blonde bob, I'm it. And he, I went and did the interview and that was it. I went and did the workshop. So what do you, so your character, yeah, so you have the blonde bob. Yeah. It was like realtor chic. Is this? Yeah. It's like. It's always pantsuits. It's always know? pantsuits. It's always blazers. I like to look. Um, very well put together. If you think of Joan Rivers, like that's what I go for each time. Just, you know, very classic, very put together. Like that's what I like as somebody that just looks sharp. And I think that, you know, I think maybe I pull it off. Oh, I <laughs> <Maybe>. definitely do. <laughs> well, you're for the first one. So when you did Drag Uation, the first one you did was actually, it wasn't Reba, it was Martina McBride. Yes. Is Broken Wing, is that what the song's uh -huh. called? Okay. I was like, I know the song, I just never know what songs are actually yeah. called because I call them different things. Mm -hmm than what they actually should be called. It was so good. I was like cry I was like crying watching it. And oh, I, really? Yeah, and I saw it twice because I the show they did the early show. Yeah, yeah. They did the second show since my girlfriend's on it. I yes. was at both and was also wrangling like her family was there, some of our friends were there, trying to wrangle seats because it was so packed. Yeah. You couldn't even like Move. get in and out, get drinks for people. We had food we were trying to smuggle in. So I was kinda like you the had wrangler. Food? We had we got fry and pie from Hi Ho across the street. I shouldn't tell if you I this now. <laughs> we would be best friends. <laughs> but yeah. Well, I mean, I was there for four hours. <laughs> <laughs> you needed something to eat. Yeah. Uh, I just remember how hot it was in, in, in there. Um, but I mean, when you cram, what, 200 people into yeah, one room? Yeah, they overstuffed it. Because where we were, and um, I was up against basically the, the side, the mm -hmm. left side of the stage, and I couldn't move. Wow. Like, we could not get out to go to the bathroom because we would have had to go by, like, 12 people, and the rows were so tight, like, you couldn't, like, people had to stand up and, like, fold their chair kind of to, to, get to move. So you're like, I'm not going to move unless, like, it is an emergency. Right. So I'm going to eat this food right here. Yeah. So we were kind of, <laughs> like, planted in. So if one person got drinks... Like we had someone from the back was like passing us drinks forward. And we're passing cash. It was right. like it was like a whole it, it was, was a, a whole system. adventure. Yeah, <laughs> but it was a ton of fun, and that was such a good song. And I thought you did such a good job on it. Thank you. And you know, Vince actually, I don't know if he had to do this with other people, but he, you know, when you do the workshop, he wants you to send in some songs for your number. Yeah. And so I sent him. I don't know. I sent him, I think we had like nine emails back and forth because he didn't like any of the songs that I chose. And so I sent him that Martina McBride number, and he was like, love it. And then he sent me back. He's like, let's do this version. And it was a cover of it that was done on The Voice. And so I knew the words to it. And so it didn't take very much for me to like transition from Martina to, um, I think her name's Shalia, to the way that she sung the song. And it's one of my favorite songs. So I just, I felt the music while I was on stage. Yeah, I mean, it's such a personal song, you yeah. know? It's really kind of soul gut-wrenching. And that's the music that I love. It's just that soul, like when you get deep down in there and you just like belt it. That's why I like with Reba, the song Fancy, when yeah. she's like, I may have been born just poor white trash, but Fancy. <laughs> and the way name? she says that is yeah. so like, even, you know, what are this, the whole song is not like that, but like there's just that one line where it's like all the emotion of the song. And it just comes this, flooding out. It comes flooding out and you can feel it. Yeah. Like I love artists like Reba, Martina McBride, Dolly, you know, yeah. where you can really 
feel the emotion in a song. And, you know, when I think of I Will Always Love You, most people think of Whitney. Mm-hmm. And I love Whitney's version. Whitney's version is a, is a powerful song. Yeah. But when you listen to Dolly's version, Dolly gets more into, like, the sadness of it. Like Dolly you know, breaks your heart. Just breaks your heart into a million pieces. And that's what I love is when you can really just feel a song. But you, I mean, but when you're on stage, you don't always want to like. I know, right? <laughs> leave the you want to leave the audience in like tears, but not all the time. <laughs> I know. Like drowning her sorrows afterwards. Yeah, you know, and I, I try to pick songs that have um, high tempo and just a lot of fun, and you know, be in the back picking a banjo. Like I, I just love that type of music. You can feel like the uh, you know saxophone or something that's just a lot of fun to dance to. I like it when I can see other people dancing with me or like if they know the words to the song, like that's what gets me more into it. Yeah. I know. I think song choice is so, you know, dating someone who's doing that, like, Mm -hmm. and and actually thinking about like curating the song choice is like, you want a song that people know, but not a song that's overplayed right? and not a song that somebody on bourbon street would be like, that's my song. Exactly. So you have this like fine balance, and then you want a song. Sometimes you want a different version of Mm -hmm. a song because you don't want the one that everybody knows. So it's, it's this really tricky thing. And I think it's, it's hard to find. I think you guys all do such a great job of, of hitting the nail on the head. Well, you know, and Vince was so right about that song, a broken wing. Everybody knows Martina's version. But when you throw in this other version that has like just a different flavor to it, everybody knows the song. They can sing along with you, but it's, it's not something that you're going to hear all the time. For sure. I So when you did the Greetings from Queer Mountain storytelling show, was that your first time doing any like, type of storytelling? Or have you done stand-up at all? Have you ever done that kind of... No. And I think that's why I showed up with such a type A personality. Like you said, <laughs> what was it, eight minutes? And I, I wrote out a whole speech and then I read it out loud here at work and I timed it to be eight minutes. And so like It that's... was actually 7.59. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it was one of those. And you know, it was so funny because... I got to see how everybody else operated, really. Like, Sophia Sugarstar was with me, and I said, oh, what are you going to do? And she's like, I'm just going to go out there and wing it. <laughs> and I was like, I would be beside myself. And she yeah. went out there, and she rocked it. And then I show up there, like, you know, shaking with precision, you know. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's how people, because with stand-up, some people go out, and they're like, I'm just going to talk to the crowd. Yeah. And I'm like, what? why would you do that? Like, what? You can do that? Like, you didn't memorize a thing that you're going to say in the same way you memorized? <laughs> like, you didn't give yourself a roadmap there? Like, what? And... I Yeah, I've lately been trying to give myself permission to be a little looser, but mm-hmm. I still always fall back on my material. But right. yesterday, I did a show with Always, and there were some tourists, and I, I couldn't help it, but they had a table. They were on that, like, side table that's, like, the one actual nice table with the couch kind of background and they had like five hand grenades just lined up at the edge of their table and that's like the shitty drink on bourbon street that you right away no tourists like and they somehow made it to the always lounge with the but they're holding you know they're holding on to the empty hand grenades because they want to take them home yeah uh, as a souvenir and i couldn't help but say something to them i basically called them out for being tourists and (laughs) everyone else loved it yeah but i was like i never Two years ago, a year ago, I would have never done that. Yeah. So there is something exhilarating in like letting go of that, but mm-hmm. I'm still like you, where I have to immediately fall back on something that I know right. works and that I've tried before. But but your story, you know, I guess you you were just you were talking a lot about you know your struggle with uh, times when you've you know had too much like when alcohol kind of took over. I don't, I'm trying to find like the right one. I'm like alcoholism. I don't want to label it as that. <laughs> and I don't want to say necessarily abuse, but like when alcohol, yeah, I guess. I mean, I'll kind say of, it was abuse. It, yeah. was, it was alcoholism. My, I had a sit down conversation with my mom and she's like, if you pick up that bottle one more time, you are going to be an alcoholic. And I never had a really 
kind of had to look down that dark hallway and be like, you have got to pull yourself out of this. You are in, this is depression. And, you know, my family's not one. Like I said, we come from a old Texas family that doesn't really deal with emotions. And, you know, I had to really figure myself out and pull myself out by the bootstraps and be like, that's enough. It, yeah, because I, I guess I, I relate to that and that with not with my current girlfriend, with my one of my <laughs> previous girlfriends, I was kind of debating. I was like, I knew it wasn't working, but I yeah. wasn't ready to quite let it go. Yeah. And I would come home from work with like a bottle of wine. And I'm saying this knowing both of my parents <laughs> will probably hear this. but um, And I would uh, tell her that it was my inspiration juice <laughs> is what I would label it as. And I would sit in the living room and drink most or all of that bottle of wine and just like write in my notebook or watch TV also for inspiration. Yeah, yep. <laughs> um, and that would be many of my nights. And I didn't think there was something wrong with that because I have a lot of friends who like, especially my mom friends or when the kids go to sleep, glass of wine, it's like this immediate thing that they do. And yeah. I was like, Oh yeah, we're all just at home drinking it's wine. And you know, you're at home by yourself drinking wine. I'm at home by myself drinking wine and it's totally fine. And it got to the point where I was like, I'm avoiding something. Yeah. <laughs> like it's not, and I, I, go out and drink socially but I wasn't doing it even for the if I was just doing it to take up time yeah and that's where I, I just wanted time to, to keep going mm-hmm. so I could go back to work yeah. <laughs> the next day which is also sad but it was like that kind of feeling and like the way your story was I, I just really related to like that where you're like okay this is a crutch or like a way for me to not share because I don't have to share because I'm drinking exactly and um I didn't know that my well, there was a, there was a, okay, let me just, what happened? Cause it was never that way. It wasn't until I moved home. So everything kind of happened within the span. I'm trying to remember exactly how I told the story. I'll do it in, in eight minutes or less. I'm just kidding. <laughs> so my boyfriend had gotten laid off from working down here. I told him you can't pay your rent if you don't have a job. So why don't you just move in with me and we'll figure it out. And so I'll, I'll... It's a lesbian move. <laughs> like, oh, something happened where you can move it, move it. Move it, come on. <laughs> and so he moved in and he was not a U.S. citizen. And so he had to jump through hoops with, you know, the visas and everything else. And so the, a deadline was coming up and he went to Argentina to figure it out where his visa would get renewed. And I remember I had his stuff because I wanted my apartment to feel like you know, his home as well. So we moved in furniture. I had his dog, you know, we had paperwork that was all over the place and he went to Argentina and he couldn't come back. He got stuck down there and I had to ship the dog back. I had to divide up all of our furniture and put one in one storage unit, one in another. My contract at work was coming up and I thought at the time that I was just going to resign. I put a deposit down on a house for us and I had to like undo all of that stuff. Oh wow, so you made all the future plans. Yeah, made all the future plans. And I mean, at that time we had been dating for, I guess about two years at that point. And then... I had to undo all of it. I had to call my parents and be like, I don't know what I've done, but I have somehow wound up in a hole. And at that same time, my grandma calls and she's like, I need help. Because my grandpa had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's and dementia. Oh, I'm sorry to And hear so, that. no, no, it's okay. And she's like, I need help. And so my brother and I, we were like, well, let's just, we'll go home. And so he quit his job in Atlanta. I figured my life out in Shreveport, what I thought I did, and moved in home. And there was really no time in between to like kind of understand the stress that I was going through at the time. And then the next thing I know, I'm having to help take care of my grandpa. And, you know, and that was, that was difficult because, you know, you, you, you see this guy that, or this man that you, you know, is a second father figure and all of a sudden he can't take care of himself and you're having to help your grandmother who my grandma is one of those women that 
is uh, she's very Southern. She's very, doesn't let her emotions show, never really says what's on her mind, very quiet. And all of a sudden we are trapped in this prison pretty much together. And we got to see a different side of her. And of course, grandpa wasn't the same. So all of that was in the span of maybe three months. Oh, wow. That that all happened. Okay, I thought that would be longer. No, it was like <laughs> just a just few. Back, um, to back, back to back. Back to back to back to back. And I didn't realize what I was doing, but I just turned to the bottle. And I was doing dumb stuff. It was so dumb what I was doing, like driving or you know, a blackout in a bar that you're not supposed to blackout in and, and, and just doing such stupid things. And I'd be like, who is this person? And then like, I didn't have time to think about it because the next thing I knew, the weekend was over and I had to come back to work. And then it's like, I'd get home and grandma would need help with grandpa. And I would take another, you know, shot of vodka before I went in there. It's like, who is this person? And it was a couple of months. I think it was about six months or maybe four months that my friends started realizing what was happening. And my mom realized what was going on. And like, before I decided, like, it took me, a, I was like, okay, I need to stop. Like, this is, there's something wrong, I need to stop. And it took me a few times of screwing up before it was like, get it together. And so right before it was like cold turkey, or not cold turkey, but you know, you need to stop and, yeah. you know, pull it together. My friends were actually buying plane tickets to come down and check on me. Oh, wow. That's how rough it was. And so anyway, everything's sorted out now. And it's much better now, but uh, there was that rough period was, it was a hell of a time. But it's good you had all the support from everybody. I did. I had a lot of support. I had you know my best friend Nicole and and Charlotte was like calling and making sure that I was okay. I had my mom, my dad, and so yeah, I really had a good support system to fall back on if I had screwed up. Yeah, I think Alzheimer's is so hard too because the person that's going through it doesn't they don't realize what's going on yeah. and then i'm sure for your grandmother it's hard this is a person she was with for how long a lot, I mean, yeah uh, for most of her life i'd assume years. and this person now might not recognize her or yeah. might be mean to her yeah in a way that she's can't understand no and it was just it was it, you know they call alzheimer's the long goodbye and it really is it is such a hard and terrible disease and it really, because my grandpa was a businessman in New Orleans. He was a, he was, it was a big deal. And it's hard to see that person just not be there. You, you're looking at a shell. And he doesn't recognize us. I remember, the, my, okay, so my brother doesn't really show emotion either. And I only saw him break down once on me. And I, I got home from work and I walked into the, um, You've been in our house before. Mm -hmm. You know, we have this big house and I walked into the back living room and he was back there and he was just kind of watching TV, but he wasn't really watching TV. And I could tell it must have been a rough day. And I just was like, hey, you, you good? And he looked at me and he's like, this isn't going to get better, is it? I said, no, it's not. And then it was just like waterworks. Was that real? Is it that moment? For that him? was that moment of like, oh my God. I can't deny this anymore. Right. Like, and it, the bad part was, is that Josh and I had opposite schedules. So it was never really the three of us helping grandpa. It was always one of us or like it would all the, uh, you know, stuff would fall down on, on mostly him because he was there during the day, my hours at work or at nights. So whenever I would get home, he'd be passed out. But he, um, my mom realized what was going on and how much we needed the help. So she went and brought him to Texas and put him in a home out there. And so my grandma moved out there with her, Josh and I live in this big house now. Yeah, no, it's a fabulous house. Yeah, it's a great house. <laughs>
Well, I mean, yeah, like I think it's so important, you know, in the storytelling to, to talk about it and, you know, for you to have powered. But I, I feel like, you know, like you've said this whole time, like when you want to do something, you, you'll do it. Yeah. For better or for worse, you know. So when you wanted to drink, you did. And when you wanted to stop. I did. You know, it you was. did. And I think for me, because I used to struggle with like, hey, maybe like I didn't know. I just think I wasn't drinking healthily. Yeah. Like I, I think there's a healthy way to, to have alcohol and enjoy it. And there's a very destructive way to do that and I was bordering on that for a little bit and you know I think just recognizing it and pulling yourself out of it well that's the thing is that I didn't recognize it for a long time I thought I was just blowing steam and then it's like oh I'm not like I'm throwing sparks yeah but it's easy to talk yourself into oh yeah you're like oh this is fine yeah normal that's totally fine not normal (laughs) and also a lot of people too when you tell them like hey you know I think I drink too much no one drinks too much and and you know it's New Orleans it's Mardi Gras I was gonna say St. Patrick's Parade and it's just this city is built on drinking culture here I guess if you wanna put it that way but people will help you find excuses exactly uh, versus being like yeah if you think you are you should maybe not maybe you should stop yeah Yeah, just take a break and I really commended Hale for I listened to her her um, podcast for just being like nope I'm not doing this anymore like I'm not taking the chance and that is that's a big step and that's a that's a brave step yeah not a brave I guess that's a brave step yeah that's a brave, a brave step. step that is a brave step because you know you live in New Orleans and yeah. you know people are gonna be like you don't drink and you perform at bars I mean yeah. that's the thing when you're performing drag or even queer mountains at a bar or I do stand up like you're in that space mm-hmm. and it's very hard sometimes to just say I want a Diet Coke. Right. I don't drink when I'm in drag. I mean, I before a show yeah. and during a show, I don't do it. There was one time that I, I did. It was, again, it was a crutch. It was that Christmas Saturday Night Cartoon show. Oh, yeah, I was there. Oh, God. I love a white Russian. <laughs> and uh, my grandma was in the crowd. Oh, yeah. You always have your family my there. My family came. They love and it. My grandma, it was the first time my grandma was seeing me in drag. And I got so nervous oh. that I went to the bartender and I was like, I really need a white Russian. And they didn't have any milk at the time. Yeah, I was going to say, do they have... <laughs> they didn't have milk. I was going <laughs> to ask that. I was like, I don't know if I so trust the milk. He mixed the... it with Baileys. Oh, and I so just went back there and I shot it back there. And I was like, well, something was different. Chris, you know, <laughs> he goes back there and he's like, well, how was it? And I was just like, so what was wrong? You know, what was up with it? And he's like, oh... Well, I mixed it with Bailey's. I was like, I just drank a whole cup of alcohol. <laughs> and <laughs> then t- Titty comes up to me. Titty Baby was like, hey, can you host the show? I was like, sure. Why not? <laughs> I can do this. I can do anything. Yeah, I completely forgot all my choreography. I winged it up there on stage. Oh, God, it was awful. No, you guys were, I mean, there were so many. Like, the big numbers had so many people yeah. that it was fine. And, I mean, that show moves. Yeah. But I, that's what, that was another thing. It was like, I will not do this again. I have to stay. You have yeah. to stay sober. Yeah, there's a there's definitely a bit. I've definitely been on stage when I've been too drunk. Yeah, I've been at some like shitty bar shows, and I'm like, I don't even want to like in my head. I'm like, I don't want to be here. So maybe like another part of me will be here. <laughs> I still I don't. As a rule, I'll have like one to two. Mm-hmm. But you're starting your own show now, right? I am. I have a show coming up Friday. All right. What what made you say I'm gonna produce a show? You produce for the news, I and do. now you're like I'm producing a show. Well, none of the shows that I wanted to do, I could do because I work, and I thought, well. If they're not coming to me, then I'll just make my own. And I did. And I just I sent up a, a, a rough email of what I wanted to do to, to Titty Baby. And she was like, I think that's a great idea. So I sent it off to Celia. And she was like, sure. Mm-hmm. And I just found, I went and asked cast members. I, and my thing was that I didn't want to, um, I didn't want just queens. I wanted kings. I wanted burlesque. I wanted like the best that we have to offer in the city. I wanted to do it. And so, you know, to be honest, I think I might be the only 
what you would think traditional drag queen on the show because we have hyper queens, we have uh, you have Daisy who you know bearded queen. Bearded so queen, yeah. yeah, we have a really diverse cast, and that was something that I really wanted to to do. I think variety is such a, a good thing when yeah. it comes to like I I like to do a show that's not just stand up. Yeah. Like I did a show the other night. It was something called Fem Night, and it was just all female per- identifying performers. And there was a band that was all like five female identifying performers, and they had a banjo and a fucking upright bass. Yeah. I was like this shit's bad, and I, I get to perform with them. And there's burlesque, and yeah. it was like so like I was like I like doing shows like that where it's different experience for me and for the audience right too. and you don't want to see anybody get up there and sing a tired shania twain number <laughs> like you want some people that'll bring some flavor and some life to it and, and really you know bring their a-game and so i, I i'm saying I, I go up to people all the time and it's like you know this show if it goes well get ready because I'm going to come to you next. But this is like, I got to live through this one. Yeah. Well, good luck with that. Thank you. I really hope it goes well. I do want to ask, because one thing I have noticed, and I've been to several of your shows, that your family is always there. Yes. Someone from your family yes. is always there. There's always someone, the minute they announce that you're coming on stage, I can tell it's like a mom. Like, <laughs> I was just like, it's, that's got to be his mom there. So they're supportive in your, like when you decided to do drag, yeah. have they been supportive in your coming out experience? Well, my dad was. My dad would. My dad would. If I asked him to grab the pride flag and march down Bourbon Street in June, you know, for Pride Month, he would do it. My mother's a little bit more prickly, and um, she will tell you so. I get my personality from my mom, and she had to. When I was ready to come out, she wasn't. She was accepting, and she was all about it. But she had to get ready for the way that maybe the extended family would receive it because we've got like i said some old school texans who may not be as accepting and i'm not even too sure if some of them even know if i am out or not but like i don't see them or talk to them so like what does it matter but and and that's one thing that you you know a lot of people i think have to realize is that if your family it may take them a little bit to it doesn't mean that they don't love you it just means that they just have to kind of get used to this newer version of you this more fabulous version of you and that's what I had to do with my mom. It took maybe a couple of months, and then it was all good. And she has, um, going back to that small town Texas way, she has lost, I think, maybe a few friends over it. Oh, really? Yeah. Because they were like, you have a gay son. They would say, you know, anti, you. anti-gay comments on Facebook or whatever, and she'd be like, delete. Oh, okay. So it was your mom. Okay. Yeah, it was my mom. It wasn't them being like, oh, you have a gay son. You're yeah, out yeah, of my yeah. life. It no, I don't think like, anybody would be brave enough to go up to my mother and say. <laughs> <laughs> I tried to talk with my mom about this like a year ago. I came out like, I don't know, over a decade ago. So yeah. she might not remember the, <laughs> the conversation. But one of the first things she said to me was, what am I going to tell my friends? Yeah. And I used to try to write a joke about it because I thought, oh, this is like a real moment for me. Because I was like, I don't care what the fuck you tell your friends. Exactly. Like, it's none of their fucking business. Like, they didn't ask about me dating anybody mm-hmm. before, so they're probably not going to ask now. So I thought it was a reflection on her, but, you know, in seeing, you know, things, it's a genuine thing because it is a not a reflection of her, but it's a thing she's going to have to yeah. deal with because people are going to have commentary and so it might have just been her thinking out loud of like, hey, how, like, what do I say to people that's, you know, appropriate? Or right. if somebody does have a problem with it, like, how do I respond to that? Exactly. So I think, you know, in the moment I was like 23, so obviously exactly. I overreacted in everything I said yep. or did. Um, but I, you know, I do think it's a very real question. Yeah. Well, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. Yeah. And I had the same problem with my mom. I'm like, get on board. What is the problem? Yeah. And she was just like throwing the brakes up. And it's like, I didn't understand. 
I was finally ready and it took forever for me to be ready with myself to go ahead and move forward with it. And when I had this resistance from somebody that was my mom, I didn't get it. And I like, I mean, we got into screaming matches on the phone with each other. And finally it was like, it clicked in my head. It's like, she's going through this too. Yeah. And it's like, you need to be, you know, everybody treat others as you want to be treated. You need to be gentle with your family too. Yeah. And just be mindful of, Instead of you, because, you know, I think too, it takes, at least for me, I can't speak for anybody else. It took so long for me to get to the place where I was out mm-hmm. that anything that I thought in any way I perceived as putting me back in the closet in any way, shape or form, I was adamantly very vocally against and yeah. I would speak against that. But then I try to like put myself in her shoes and she's like, okay, well for 23 years I haven't had to deal with this. And now this is a thing that will come up in conversation. This is a thing that will come up with other family members, with friends, Facebook on social media. How do I handle this? And I think it is very valid. So when I, you know, calmed down and looked at that, and also I think too, the first time that I ever felt unsafe being out in public really, it didn't put me back in the closet, but it made me be more aware of my surroundings and also just aware of like, yeah, there are like, even though I'm comfortable with me, there's still people that aren't. Right. And I can't control that. I can maybe talk to some people and get them to see me as a human mm-hmm. and not as someone who's burning in hell or ruining their lives right. or not fucking them or right, whatever, right, right. whatever it is. Like, maybe I can eventually get to that place. But there's also, like, legitimate safety concerns yeah. that, you know, my mom had for me. And that's, you know, every time I, I decide to do drag and my grandma is always like how far do you have to walk where exactly are you going she has all of these questions lined up for me and it's like what's the problem you know i don't yeah. i don't get it and it's like but you all yeah exactly I, like i'm gonna walk here and that's just how it's gonna be yeah. <laughs> and like you also have to realize that my grandmother comes from a different generation this wasn't you know out in the open when she was growing up and that she's also I think my problem, too, I always assume people are coming from a bad place. Like, yeah. I, I need to get that out of my head. Like, she's not coming from a bad place. No. She just wants you to get from your car to where you're performing Exactly. Safely. She wants you to live. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And, you know, and, it, it, and I also have to remember that New Orleans is not sometimes all that safe. And you have to, you know, be aware of your surroundings. And I'm sorry, but I tried running in heels, and I can't. <laughs> <sighs> I've given up on heels. <laughs> and I think I think with the the realtor chic look, you can kind of get away with a nice flat. Yeah. Um, I have or a nice my, platform maybe. I have my nice kitten heel slingbacks is what I, I like to. Kitten heel, yeah. yeah. So I, I wear those a lot when I, because I work the door for uh, Miss for Misk uh, at, at Oz, Oz mm-hmm, yeah. every Friday. And which is great because then it's like I get to test run all these outfits and wigs and makeup skills and everything else, you know, just working the door. So I know that, you know, I can... Pull off a kitten heel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And how'd you get... So you're Mrs... You're usually Mrs. Deacon Brown, yeah, right? Yeah, But the full name is Mrs. Deacon Dorothy Brown. Yes, yes. And how did that name come about? Also, I'm going to add a multi-question. <laughs> also, why Mrs.? Mrs. Okay, so I kept the Mrs... Well, when I was first dabbling in drag, I had a friend at the time who said I looked like the Deacon's wife. You know, that's the way that I dressed. And so she was like, oh, Mrs. Deacon Brown. <laughs> and so when I decided that I no longer wanted to be friends with that person, I added my first, the Dorothy to it. Now, Dorothy's a nickname that I got in college because I 
had an internship at a TV station, a radio show, going to school full time, all that. So I, my day started at three o'clock in the morning and went in until 11 o'clock at night, Monday through Friday. And so when it was Friday night and everybody wanted to go out to the bars and go two-step and everything else that you do in Amarillo, Texas, uh, <laughs> um, you know, they, I would be dead on the floor and they'd be like, stop acting like such a Dorothy with her two cats and her husband's dead. You're being so bitchy, blah, blah, blah. Get up, Dorothy. You know, and then, you know, so Dorothy's stuck. So I knew that when I did the workshop, I was like Dorothy. And so I kept the Mrs. Deacon Brown because, I mean, I like, I mean, the Deacon's wife. I mean, come on. Yeah. Who wouldn't want to be the Deacon's wife? And then, you know, and Brown because, I, you know, I love Murphy Brown. So I kept the Brown. Mm. But I did keep the Mrs. on there for Sebastian, which was the boyfriend that was cool with it. He was the one that went to Argentina and couldn't come back. So I kept that on there for, for him, really, just because I felt like that it would be like an honorary thing. Not that he's dead or anything, but you know, you know, I, I <laughs> no, just, no, no, it commemorates a time in your life. Yeah. Like, so that, that, okay. when, that, when that was there. So yeah. yeah. So I kept Mrs. Deacon Dorothy Brown. Do you talk to him at all still? Yeah, actually we, I don't know what we're doing at the moment, but okay. he's, he's, he's back and fluttering about. Oh, he's okay. Not in the city. I think he's supposed to be back in um, three weeks, but yeah, we've been talking and, and, and everything's very friendly, but um, we're not, I laid out my stipulations for us if we were going to get back together. Probably shouldn't be saying that either. <laughs> but yeah, we, uh, we've, been, we've been talking. Okay. Well, that's good. I just want to make sure he was okay. Yeah, no, no yeah, so that's fine. Was He's like, not... So he just went back to Argentina. Yeah, he went and, back to Argentina. And, and not then, the end. Not, yeah, that, no, he came back and he uh, is in school at Cornell. Oh. Yeah, he was smart. He's a smart little that guy. He is a smart place. Right. But anyway, he, he's back in the U.S. and he's taking a job in Chile. Oh, okay. So he'll be going he's going again. away. And he wants to come back and see what happens. Well, he can find you on the news. That's right. <laughs> you know, you turn the TV on. <laughs> yeah. Well, let everyone know, actually, uh, let everyone know where they can find you, uh, social media, and then if you want to let them know on the news when they can sure. watch you. Well, I am, I guess, Monday through Thursday, I'll be on News with a Twist at 10. And then Sundays, I anchor 5 and 10 on WGNO, which is the ABC station. I'm a reoccurring member of Saturday Night Cartoons. And if this all goes well with Mrs. Deacon Brown's throwdown, this will become a, a regular thing. If it doesn't go well, forget I said that. <laughs> if I, out. Yeah, if I, if I crash and burn, forget about it. <laughs> Never happened. Um, and it's then, gonna go great. I'm putting it out there. Oh in the my universe. god, I hope so. It's gonna be a regular monthly show. Yeah, I hope so. You're gonna have a nice rotating cast that you're gonna love. We'll see. But I have game out. I'm doing a duet with Daisy Confused. In fact, we hung out I told you actually when we were walking in here like Daisy and I had a very long night last night <laughs> <laughs> and we planned our choreography for our duet so yeah anyway it's Mrs. Deacon Brown's throwdown that'll be if it goes well a regular thing and uh working the door at Oz on Fridays and social media you want to sure it's uh uh it's Deacon Dorothy Brown on Instagram and I haven't quite figured out how Facebook works because I'm also an 80 year old woman <laughs> <laughs> so I have a, a Facebook page but I don't do anything really with Not it Find, find him on Instagram. Instagram is where it's at. Thanks so much for sitting down with us. Yes, absolutely. You feel I, good? Yeah. Feel I, like a weight's been lifted? Yeah, I love talking to you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, thanks for thanks for doing this. Yes, of course. Thank you to Mrs. Deacon Dorothy Brown for sharing her world with you. Special thank you to Jessa Fallon and Ryan Golub for your help editing and producing the show. You can find the live queer storytelling show, Greetings from Queer Mountain, in New Orleans, Austin, New York, and now the Bay Area. Thank y'all so much for tuning in. If you like what you hear, give us some love on social media. Queer to my heart on Twitter, near and queer to my heart on Facebook and Instagram. 
or just email us near and queer my heart at gmail.com. Thank y'all. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.